0: The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. It's always such a privilege to gather with the Church of the Risen Lord Jesus and sing together and respond to God's Word and, and the fellowship, so I invite you to please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as we continue our series in 1 Corinthians on the cross and the Christian life, and we continue on. In chapter 6, and and these words, as we say every week now, they come to us not as just ink printed on a page and then distributed around the world, but every time we hear from this book, we're actually hearing from the same authority and the same power as Jesus himself. We're hearing from King Jesus. And so in honor of Jesus, we like to stand in honor of our great God and Savior and hear what the Spirit of Christ says to us from God's Word. So let's stand together and reading Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. And let's hear what the Spirit tells us. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you who is wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have a lawsuit at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. God. Let's pray together. Holy Father, now would you send the power of the Spirit as we look at your word that we would be changed, we would be convicted, and we would be encouraged as we seek to follow Christ and to do all that we do unto your honor and your glory. So now, Lord, would you prepare us to hear your words? and have them pierce through the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So now, by your power, do only what you can do. And it's in your mighty name that we pray, amen. Be seated. You know, just, just before the service started, a group of us were sitting there talking about um, movies, and particularly the Avengers movies. And I, I, I really love watching movies. I, I've always really enjoyed movies, um, especially comedies and action movies I just love. And then if you can somehow combine comedy and action and they go well together, oh, it's just amazing. I think Guardians of the Galaxy nails it. I think the Avengers movies just do that really well. Um, there was one movie I remember seeing in sixth grade, and it just terrified me. I was, I was at my aunt's house, I think, and all of a sudden, I'm sitting at the table, and I see this movie that's pl- playing, and all of a sudden, Black Hawk helicopters are crashing. It's everywhere. And all of a sudden, trains are going off the rails and exploding. Uh, cars are abandoned everywhere. People are screaming and crying, and fires are breaking out all over the place, and there's piles of clothes all over the country. If you grew up in the church, you kind of have an idea of what kind of movie I'm talking about already. It was, a, it was a rapture movie, and I remember being really freaked out and really unnerved at what was going on. I asked, what in the world are we watching? And they said, well, then they began to tell me about the rapture, and then began a long and confusing discussion and study on the end times and charts, and I went, here's what I never said of it. Now, I don't, I don't have that particular view of, of the rapture and how it all play out. That's not for today. That's for another time. But... I don't think, how are those movies meant to, like, why are they, like, for Christians? Like, we're watching that, oh, look how terrible the world w- would be if that's the way it went out. Well, we won't be here. So <laughs> why is that movie a motivation for, for Christians? But regardless, there are some Christians who go bananas for the end times. I mean, they go nuts for it. Even, even to my own detriment, I Googled a website yesterday called Rapture Ready. <laughs> and they have a rapture index where they are calculating all kinds of factors to how prominent Satanism is, how prominent terrorism is, how much alcohol is being drank in the country, uh, how much, you know, they have all these kinds of factors that they've all decided on their own, and they have their own algorithm, and now they are calculating and pinpointing when the rapture will be, even though they've been wrong multiple times. That is all a bunch of baloney. But Christians eat that junk up. I even made the mistake of reading some of their online discussion groups. I needed to wash my eyes with the Bible afterwards. (laughs) So why do Christians go nuts for this stuff? Because we are often short-sighted. The thing with eschatology, with end times learning, the teaching of the end times, the last days of heading into eternity, living in the new earth, the Bible's focus is hardly about a rapture. Guys, there is really only one, maybe two passages that address this. One kind of clear one and one not very clear one. And yet people go, bananas for this whole thing. Really, when the Bible is talking about end times theology, it's teaching us how our eternity is meant to shape us for today. It's all we see in the New Testament, the majority of what we see in the New Testament is, how does this end times deal? How does the kingdom to come, how does that shape us for today? But we misfire We misfire over blood moons and obsess over tribulations, and we forget that the fulfillment of the kingdom of Christ is forming our lives now. And here's a prime example. If a Christian is more concerned about the rapture, or if there is a literal thousand-year kingdom, and we study away, and we study away on those topics, all while ignoring a conflict between a brother or sister in Christ, we have misunderstood that end times theology. And this is exactly what's happening in Corinth. This is exactly what's happening. The Corinthians are experiencing all kinds of disunity. And here in chapter 6, Paul addresses a division in the church that has been taken to a whole new level. A dispute has broken out in the church at Corinth, maybe over business, maybe over money. Maybe a man broke another man's rake, and he refuses to pay it up. And we, we, we don't know what the issue is. But instead of trying to work it out together in the name of Jesus and in the bond of fellowship, they want to work it out in the name of Judge Judy. And Paul can't believe it because they're not living with the end in mind. Look at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against, against another, that is common. That happens. We are humans. We are sinners. We have disputes. And we have things that we've got to work out. This is why we have the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But look at what they do. Does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Here's a smoother way to read Verse 1. How dare you take this dispute to unbelievers and out of the church? That's really because that word "dare" in Greek—that's really the first one that Paul's really hitting them with. You dare to bring this out of the church and among unbelievers, so a lawsuit is occurring in the church. And Paul says this shouldn't happen. And right out of the gate, we got to make this clear because it could be really easy to hear this passage and go, "Christians should never be involved with lawsuits." And now that—that's not true. This doesn't mean that Christians should never be involved in lawsuits. And that we shouldn't involve the government. We should just try things in-house and just leave it that way. No way. If a crime is committed, the authorities, police involved. Every time. No no excuses. Zero tolerance. Man abuses his wife. Man abuses kids. Get him. Police, come. Sexual abuse, call the police. Criminal dealings, call the police. The, so this is, Paul is saying you are taking a civil matter to a civil court, not a criminal matter. A lot of times there are these civil disputes and disagreements and how we've mistreated one another that we can handle inside the church. But if a crime occurs, we take it to the proper authorities. So that's, this is not that justification for what's happening in Corinth. But Paul can hardly believe that they are taking a dispute between two Christians, and you're now taking it to an unbeliever to figure it out. It's basically what Paul's saying in the first section. So you two guys, man A, man B, you you have a dispute with one another, and you two who are now both alive in the spirit of the risen Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, you're walking in the knowledge of the truth of God, and now y'all think it's a good idea to have someone who is dead in their sins help you live like Christians. Do you see how Paul's saying, this doesn't make sense to me. And not only is this unwise, it's also sad. Look at verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough? Now, if you've been here through the whole time through 1 Corinthians, that's been a theme. They think they're a very wise church. They think they've got it all figured out. They think they're very smart. And Paul says, so now you guys are so wise, but you're telling me there's no one wise enough among you to help you settle this? There's no one wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? Here's why this is sad. To bring a lawsuit against a brother or sister in Christ that's not criminal, to get the world to help the church get along is to basically admit that the cross of Christ is not powerful enough to bring us together. That we need something else. The blood of Jesus just isn't enough for this. They are handling the church of corn they are handling Christian community as though it's a win or lose as though they are each other's enemy as though they aren't really brothers saints in Christ they're going to unbelievers and saying help us teach us how to make this right between us and Paul uses very strong language this is a shameful thing to do it's very strong language this doesn't change their standing with god they're saved But it's very displeasing to God. It grieves the spirit. And in verse five, Paul nudges them. So you're telling me there's no one in the church who can help you work this out? Is there not a wise or godly person among you? Here's here's what's occurring. They have developed and they are perpetuating a low view of the local church. And this is a danger in our hearts too. When we have an issue in our marriage, in our home, an issue among other Christians, Do we run to the reconciling help of the gospel like they should have done? To the community like they should have done? Or do we run to the internet first? Do we run to Dr. Phil archives first? Or books? Or we get advice from an unbelieving coworker? Now, those things aren't evil, but Paul's point is your priority, your reflex ought to be the local church my brothers and sisters in Christ. Or maybe, maybe what's happening to some of us is we have filed a lawsuit in our heart and in our mind and we are the judge and the jury and we execute the sentence and we've exiled this person to a relational desert island. And these are all wrong. And why is it such a big deal to Paul? Why is Paul so worked up about this? Paul is so worked up about this because they are bypassing the importance of the local church and the power of the gospel to reconcile us. Guys, the gospel is the ministry of reconciliation, of sinners being reconciled to God by the work of Christ on his cross and sinners, us being reconciled to one another. And what the Corinthians are showing by this lawsuit, by their little night court episode, is that the gospel actually can't reconcile us. The gospel actually can't reconcile us. They are denying the reconciliating power of the gospel, not in doctrine, but in their culture. They would never deny on paper, in theology, yes, the gospel cannot reconcile us, but they are denying it by their living They know gospel doctrine, but they aren't living a gospel culture. And both are essential. Both are vital to a local church. And to help the the Corinthians work this out, to help them think through when they have real conflict, real disputes among Christians, look at Paul's instruction for them. He reminds them of something. Look at verse 2. Do you not know? That phrase happens three times just in our section. It happens, I think, six times just in this chapter. It happens 10 times throughout the book. Do you not know? Here's the first one. Do you not know the saints will judge the world? This is his first charge to them. You you guys know this. Don't you know this? Here's why you shouldn't sue each other. Don't you know the saints are going to judge the world together? These people suing one another, all Christians, all of us, as united to Christ, as co-heirs with him, he shares the responsibility with us of judging the world. And Paul's logic is, if you are going to be a part of that, can you not be able to handle this little dispute here? What is Paul doing? He's pointing them to eternity. Don't you see where you're headed? Do you not know the end that's coming? And if that is true of you, can you not, by that same power and by that same spirit, can you not settle disputes here, now, today? Look at verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? What? <laughs> I mean, when I read that, I went, what in the world? And if you read that and didn't go, what in the world? You need to read it again until you go, what in the world? Do you not know that you are going to judge angels? Guys, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I have no idea what that looks like. And I read all kinds of books. I read all kinds of stuff. No one really knows. Some guys, some scholars say maybe it means that since we are going to reign with Jesus as as our brother in Christ, as united to him, as co-heirs with him, Revelation says, he shares his ruling throne with us, just like Adam in the garden, who was supposed to have dominion over the earth and he failed, we in Jesus, we will have dominion over the entire universe with him. This is reality. It even sounds crazy saying it. This is reality for the Christian. And so maybe since that is true, the fact that we're going to judge angels, maybe it just means that we are going to rule over the angels with Jesus. I don't know. Sure, why not? Sounds good. Or other people say maybe it means since Jesus is sharing his throne with us that we will join with him in judging the satanic powers. Sure, why not? I, I don't know. It's, Paul just says it, and it's probably clear to them. It's not clear to us, but whatever it means... It means our role in the end with Jesus is spectacular. And that that spectacularness is enough to change us today. It's enough to change how we handle disputes in this life. Disputes and arguments and conflict, they get out of hand when we are short-sighted. But when we think rightly about eternity to come, that it's just about to pop over the ridge, it changes how we live and how we treat each other today. Our future lives shape our present. Our future lives shape our present in a properly calibrated eschatology. Instead of getting the church all wound up like one of those monkeys with the symbols going around, studying blood moons and going bananas over charts what it actually does it actually beautifies the church a properly calibrated eschatology actually beautifies the church it reminds us of reality it reminds us of who we are it reminds us of who I am it reminds us of who I am going to be it reminds me of who you are and who you are going to be like C.S. Lewis said you have never met just a mere mortal You're a co-reigning ruler with Christ. It reminds us of what's to come. It reminds us of what we have to look forward to and all that Jesus gives us. And when that really begins to set in on you, Paul's point is your relational guns get lowered. And the gospel begins to shape and form our understanding of the future and the present. For example, look at Paul's logic. So what happens when a dispute breaks out? What, What do you do? From the text, here's what we see. Number one, you try to work it out together. If that doesn't work, what do you do next? Verse five, you get a wise Christian to help you navigate, which I've seen at Redeemer, and it's been amazing. Two brothers had a conflict, had a little issue, and instead of going to lawyers, which were mentioned kind of in bizarre ways, then they went to the elders and said, will you help us settle this? So you get a wise Christian to help you navigate, and if that doesn't work, no traction, you're at a standstill. What does Paul say to do? Just absorb the wrong. Look at verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. No one wins, you both lose. And look what he says next. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Whoa. That is so countercultural, that is so un American. That is not an an American vocabulary. I'll just suffer the wrong. I'll just be defrauded. That is not the American way, but it is the Christian way. When a man hits you on one cheek, what? Turn the other. When a man demands your cloak of you, what does Jesus say? Give him your tunic also. When a man demands that you go one mile with him, what? Jesus says, go another. Love your enemies. Love others as yourself. Treat others as you would want to be treated. That that is so un-American, but it is exactly Christian. To have a lawsuit among the Christians, Paul says you lose, but rather why not suffer the loss? Just absorb the wrong. It's it's done. Why not rather be wronged? Why not just rather be defrauded? It is so contrary to our flesh. When we know, like, Man A is wronging man B, and you're man B. You're going, but he's going to rip me off. He's ripping me off. I can't let him do that. Paul says, sure he can. If you're filled with the Spirit, sure he you can. You're better off doing so. Why? We know the why, why they won't do that because of the flesh. So if it's the flesh, why they won't do that, why would they do this? Because of the Spirit. Isn't our gospel a message of a man from Galilee suffering a wrong that he did not deserve? Jesus absorbing our wrongs under the wrath of God so that we could receive the blessing? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it was written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The gospel is a message of salvation and the humble death of Jesus in our place for our sins. And Paul says later that now this leads us to humble ourselves and to consider others more important than ourselves. So why, can, why, why not just be defrauded? I can, you can if you consider that person more important than yourself. But I'm gonna lose out. No, 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 you won't. You're actually going to gain because God sees your faithfulness and what's, what's Paul's whole point? You live with the end in mind. What's $200? When, when you have Neptune coming your way. What's, you know, what is, what's this business deal? You own the universe with Jesus. Let the Holy Spirit bring conviction. It's not our job to convict one another. And while Paul gives this instruction why not rather just be defrauded? Why not rather just be wronged? You know, Jesus, he never corrected people when they accused him of, of things when of, I mean, he was on trial. Say this, say this, say this. If you really are the son of God, he hangs on the cross, why don't you just come down? He totally could have come down. He had the power, the strength, the ability. He could have smoked everyone in that area, but he doesn't. when Paul gives this instruction, why not rather just be wronged or defrauded? So don't keep fighting. But Paul doesn't gloss over the fact that if there's a brother, if there's man B is being defrauded by man A, then man A needs to hear, stop defrauding. That's exactly what he says in verse eight. But you yourselves wrong and defraud and even your own brothers. So he doesn't just tell the person that's being wronged, hey, just deal with it. Also the person that's wronging, stop wronging people. Stop defrauding people. Live what we are, not what we were. Repent, make it right. It's basically what Paul's saying. Here's how it works. Don't cut corners against your brothers. Especially when Christian men and Christian women, they begin to do businesses together, and they do deals, and they're working on things. Really, the lordship of Christ should be manifested in all of those things working as unto the Lord. So don't, don't cut corners against your brothers, Paul's advice would be, his counsel. Don't use loopholes and business deals and to deceive others, though you can do it, but it is kind of slimy. That's, that's not Christian. Don't agree to do something, knowing all along that you were never going to do it. Galatians 6. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those in the household of faith. Let us do good to everyone, especially brothers and sisters in Christ. Suing another member of the body of Christ is wrong, and so is bamboozling your brother or sister. The world has their ways and the church has hers. We're followers of Christ. We we imitate Jesus. We've been set free from unrighteousness. This is Paul's point in verse 9. So he tells them, some of you are defrauding your own brothers. And now the great transition to verse 9. And do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So to defraud is an unrighteous activity. And now Paul says, and don't you realize the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? So what's his motivation to them again? Think about the end, the kingdom to come, your inheritance. He's calling them back to eternity. Don't be so petty with each other. Look at the kingdom to come. And he's telling them, don't live in unrighteousness. Look at the kingdom to come. And Paul's point here really is, if you keep this up, this defrauding, this suing, this backbiting, backstabbing, you might show that you actually aren't going to inherit the kingdom. Because this is not how Christians act in the long haul. Because you're living still as though you are unrighteous. And he rattles off a list of things, a list of sins, Saying, "Do not be deceived by others, and do not deceive yourselves. That the people who practice these things do not inherit the kingdom. The sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers." He's saying that, that's here. All of these sins are all things Paul's going to address that are occurring in the Corinthian church. Now, these are all problems. He you keep this up, you make this your way of life. Now, this doesn't mean, sometimes we can read passages like this and go, whoa, I, I did that once, so am I out? That's not what Paul's saying. This doesn't mean that a person committed adultery once, and they're out of the kingdom forever. That person had one too many margaritas and Cinco de Mayo, so adios, you're out. That, that, that's not what he's saying. This means this is their life, this is their way, this is their identity, Notice, these are all identities. These actually aren't sins, but these are people that he's listing. These are sinners. These are identities of sinners. A way of life. They're not struggling. They're not stumbling. This is who they are, the sexually immoral, the idolaters. Not idolatry, the idolaters. Not swindling, swindlers. And Paul could keep going. Paul could rattle off all kinds of things like he does in other passages. But why these in particular? Why these sins? Why these identities? Because of verse 11. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. Wow. He just gave us a real insight into the church, the membership roster at the Church of Corinth. What kind of people make up the Church of Corinth? People who were sexually immoral, who were idolaters, who were adulterers, men who practiced homosexuality, men and women who were thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, and pauses, and such were some of you. But no more. Those were your former lives. And I don't think the construction is really easy to see. It's not some of you guys were some of these things. No, all of these things, some of you were. Remember, no one in Corinth grew up in a Christian home. No one in Corinth grew up going to Awana's. Or prayed before their meals as kids. They grew up with a thousand prostitutes roaming the streets at night who they could go with to worship various idols. And Paul looks at them and says, Some of you, some of you live this way. And Paul's looking at us and maybe saying, Some of you were just like these people, but you were. There's so much power in the tense that Paul uses. Some You were. Some of you were these things. Peasants, no more. And such were some of you, and here's a better word, but you were washed. There's no more scarlet letters on Christians. These things are real sins in our lives, who we were before Jesus, but now in Jesus, such were some of us. But now, no scarlet letter is just a scarlet robe of Christ's blood washing away all of our guilty stains. Every single one, like the Old Tim says, I love it. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that blood lose all of their guilty stains. And dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. This is what the blood of Jesus does. Such were some of us. And how did the were occur? Look what he says. Verse 11, you were washed. That means you were cleansed. All those identities, all those sins washed. You were sanctified. Usually we talk about sanctification. It's it's a process and it's the final result. But Paul also uses as present. You were sanctified. Now you sit cleansed because of what happened in your past. You were sanctified. You were cleansed. You were made holy. And next one, you were justified. You were declared not guilty. You were declared righteous, by God. Right now, if you are in Christ, you sit washed, you sit sanctified, and you sit justified. These words overcome the other were. Such were some of us, but we were washed. And we need more were in our vocabulary. Yes, we are being changed. Yes, we are in process. But Paul also uses it as it's good as done. And a lot of the struggles in the Christian life is looking at ourselves and saying, my, my life in Christ, it's in process, but it's also been finalized. Washed, sanctified, justified. And when do these happen? All three of these happen in a moment. At the moment of conversion, at the moment of regeneration, at the moment of new birth. Have they happened to you? Have you been washed? Have you been sanctified? Have you been justified? There's no sin unwashable. No sinner unchangeable. No sinner unjustifiable. And it can be yours by faith in Jesus. You can repent and and receive him today. And the spirit may be at work in you because how does it happen? You are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. The entire Trinity just tackles you and changes you. To be a Christian is to be washed in the name of Jesus. His death, his resurrection, his blood cleansing us. To be a Christian is to be sanctified in the name of Jesus. Made holy because of Jesus, not because of us. To be justified in the name of Jesus, as Paul says, is that Jesus alone makes us righteous. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jeff Metters fades into the background, and Jesus steps forward. Jesus' perfect life and death on the cross, resurrection from the dead, brings us new life. And all of our sins, even, I mean, all of our sins, even the ones that we're going to commit today and tomorrow, in his eyes, he already says, were. All all of it, no matter what's going to come up. It's already been post-dated to Golgotha, 33 A.D., And all of those past identities that we all have in our lives and that sometimes the satanic powers and our flesh try to bring up and try to wave in our face drunkard, pill popper, adulterer, worrywart, Miss Vanity, Mr. Morality, cheater, liar, addict. The power of this passage is now that Paul says they are all gone. They have been vaporized by the blood of Jesus. And now it's just saved by the blood of the Lamb. There is nothing. What you must believe from this passage is that there is nothing for the Christian that will ever come up in their life. Today, 20 years from now, nothing will ever come up in your life that isn't already covered by the blood of Jesus. And hallelujah. Because I would be a freak if that wasn't true. I would be a basket case. We would be perpetually nervous. And God says, no, to walk with God doesn't bring nerves. It brings peace. Given to us, not by our goodness, our proven effort, but by the Spirit of Christ. It's all given by the Spirit. The Spirit washes us in the blood. The Spirit sanctifies us in His name. The Spirit applies Jesus' cross to our lives, and the verdict is in, justified. Your whole life, the verdict's already been rendered, justified. And the Corinthians want to know a verdict over their little opinions and over their little disputes. But Paul says, Why don't we go visit the heavenly court and let's hear the verdict that is echoing through the angelic realm, justified. This is your life, and this changes how we treat one another. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? But you were washed. Paul's inviting us to live from the wonder of the gospel, looking past our pettiness and short-sighted views and living from a gospel-minded eternity. Revelation 1, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever, amen. And behold, he is coming with the clouds. This is a gospel-minded eternity. He loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Such were some of us, but we've been washed. And he's coming on the clouds. So what lawsuit again? What dispute again? What eschatology chart were we looking at again? What disagreement were we having? No. Behold, he's coming on the clouds. And so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Christ be praised. Let's pray. If you're serving the Lord's Supper today, I invite you, you can go ahead and come up. Jesus, would you help us to look beyond today, to look beyond our very short-sighted view of life and to look to eternity, to look to your kingdom, to look to your throne, to look to your new heavens and new earth that you will give to us, that we will reign and rule with you together. And would that beautify the church? That conflicts would be absorbed into the wonder of the gospel. that you would create in us not just a passion for appropriate and right doctrine, but also a passion for the right ethics in the church, the right sociology, the right culture of how we would treat one another. And would you help us all to humble ourselves and not think of ourselves too highly, but consider others more important than ourselves. Jesus, would you help us to enjoy and live from the fact that we were washed and that we would walk around as washed people, that we were sanctified. That we were justified. That we sit here today as people declared righteous, holy, in the name of Jesus. And it's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen.